Tamworth's widest Friday music right here at 92.9. JB for breakfast. Thanks to Country Auto's Havlitz New Car Thinking. Here we are, 9-11, 19 years ago today, the single deadliest terrorist attack in history. 2,977 fatalities across the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and also Pennsylvania, including 343 firefighters and 72 United States police officers as well. It resulted in 25,000 injuries and also long-term health effects as well, and $10 billion in damage. Rodney Payne was there in New York on that Tuesday morning of 9-11 and witnessed this event unfold, and he joins me on the line now. Rod, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, pleasure. Good to talk. You woke up that morning, September 11, you've gone about your day like so many other people did right around the world, and especially in New York on that on that morning. Where were you around about sort of 8 a.m. on that uh, September 11 morning? Well, look, as it turned out, I was supposedly having breakfast at the top story of the window of the Twin Towers, which is a restaurant known as Windows on the World. And I was having breakfast there with a very good buddy of mine who actually couldn't make it. So it was very fortuitous to us that we cancelled that appointment and had breakfast downstairs. So I was downstairs around the building at the bottom of the base of the building when the when the first plane went in. You were in um, the tower that the first plane hit or you're in the other one and you saw that plane hit that tower? Well, as it turns out, I, I was, I'd, I'd moved across to an office block across the road having another business meeting and there was a stir about the fact that a plane had gone into the, into the World Trade Tower and obviously that's when we all left that building and went to the ground level to observe what was going on and we stood there watching what at that point we all thought had been an accident. I imagine the noise must have been just phenomenal. Yeah. Funnily enough, you know, it's hard to think about the scale, but the plane was in so high that it was actually a long way from the street level, Mm. which meant that uh, it was very surreal. You're watching a lot of people have a very dreadful time, but... Mm was still a long way away from us at that point. So as it turned out, um, we stood and watched that that building burn for quite a long time before that first building came down. But obviously, you know, after we saw that second plane come in was when people realised it wasn't an accident and that's when the panic and the anxiety was at at fever pitch. What what I found, or what we all found so horrifying was that as it turned out, we'd actually moved into the hotel across the road to start to check out to to leave new york and we were in that hotel foyer when the first building actually came down so we had a horrifying moment coming out of that building we'd been in and looking back and realizing that that second massive structure had collapsed only a very short distance from where we'd all been so uh, obviously a very horrifying outcome for everyone involved yeah, it was an incredibly shocking thing and incredibly shocking to be so close to it. And obviously, I feel incredibly lucky to be standing here in Sydney right now yeah. telling you the story. Yeah. And that's why my colleagues and I who were there together for that time all have a, a lunch every every year to celebrate the fact that we're all still here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Have you been back to New York since 9-11? Yes, I have. I, a number of times. Yeah. And I took my children back, obviously, for them to look at the new... Uh, uh, at, at the brand new monument. So, look, I mean, we love New York. And it's yeah. a shame that it's going through this dreadful time now with COVID. So, yeah. look, what, all you can say is um, one of those things we were happy to, to, to just miss out on a very bad outcome.
Yeah, exactly. You must pinch yourself, though, the, the fact that you were meant to be having breakfast. And that was the thing with 9-11. There were all these stories in the days and weeks and months after of people, you know, I was meant to be there and I wasn't. And, uh, and unfortunately, on the flip side of that, people that weren't meant to be there that were, of course. Yeah, look, I did, I did come back from that experience very committed to spend mm. a lot of time with my children, which I've been very fortunate to do in that time since then. So there's no doubt I would say it had a material impact on my life and my family's life, which has certainly changed my attitude to a lot of things. Thank you so much for having a chat with me today. And uh, look, enjoy the luncheon. Um, and uh, thank you so much for, for having a chat. A pleasure. Good to meet you. And joined on the line with digital and online expert Nate Anima. Thank you so much for having a chat with me this morning. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. No dramas. So there's been a couple of uh, sort of high-profile cases when it comes to old stuff that people have posted on social media. We're talking years ago. We're talking decades ago. And it's kind of come back to haunt them. The most recent one is uh, poor old Lockie, the bachelor, and uh, some old comments that he posted on MySpace of all platforms that have come back to haunt him. Nate, <laughs> we need to get on and we need to sort of clean out our old stuff on our digital platforms. Yes, look, it's, it's always a good idea to kind of update and audit uh, things that, that's open to the public eye. Whether you're in the public eye or not, it's always a good idea just to just to keep your ducks in a row and keep everything organised and nicely. I mean, it's, it's just good practice. But in this case, as you can as you can tell, just, uh, just like poor old uh, Lockie from The Bachelor, not doing that has caused a bit of a headache for him. So. <laughs> and I mean, it is, it is my space. I mean, he probably even forgot he created it, what, like 14... 14- 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look, I mean, uh, I, I, I don't even know if you remember your MySpace when you had it. I, I certainly had a MySpace when I was going there, but uh, for the life of me, I can't remember what was on there. It was that long ago. But that just goes to show once it's online, yeah. it's there. It's, it's there for the public. Exactly right. That's it. What are some of the ways that you can sort of clean up your digital footprint? The best thing, the best bit of advice I can give you guys, some suggestions and recommendations before I give you these three, uh, three tips to help you clean up and make things a bit smoother, is to enjoy the process because this is a walk down memory lane. So mm. don't uh, don't be too critical and too harsh on yourself while it's going, but still, but still make sure that it is a serious thing. So the first thing, first bit of advice I can I can give you guys is to chunk everything up into categories. Uh, now, social media does a really good job at doing this for you naturally, videos, audios, posts, uh, depending on what platform you're on, but uh, ch- keeping them into clear, dedicated chunks. For example, uh, as we just covered, videos, audios, and posts, but then there's also, like for example, on Facebook, things you've been tagged in versus things that you've uploaded yourself. So just run through these categories and keep them uh, categorized and don't sort of jump between one and another. Mm. Like, uh, wake, you know, turn around and go, you know what, I'm going to go through Facebook today and I'm going to go through all my videos on Facebook today mm. and then uh, and then jump over to Instagram and I'm going to do mm. my videos there and then jump onto mm. it. And then just tackle them one at a time. Mm. It's probably the best way to do it. And my, my big recommendation is while you're doing this, have a glass of bubbly with you or a beer because you're going to have a good giggle at some of the silly <laughs> things that you did when you were younger. Uh, number two is probably have a, a set of rules, a list of rules that you're going to follow. 
So uh, what I mean by rules here, um, kind of like Pirates of the Caribbean, they're more like guidelines. Say uh, no racial slurs, for example, or, you know, that X, I'm going to make sure I get rid of that X, or I'm going to make sure that I'm not going to post anything that has anything controversial on. Um, and, And the last little bit of advice I can give you guys as well is, Look, once it's online, once it's on the internet, it's on there. You, you, unfortunately, we can't scrub it completely clean. It doesn't. It doesn't work like that. Experts like myself uh, and other people that that uh, are used to doing a little bit of digging on a regular basis for companies and for individuals, it's on there. It doesn't matter whether it's on the social media or not, and you have gotten rid of it. We will be able to find it. What about if you find something on the internet that you disagree with or don't like mm. that's written about mm. you, but it's not on one of your platforms that you control? What can you do there mm. or are you a bit stuck? Uh, yes and no. Look, you are kind of a little bit stuck because it's not something that you've posted personally yourself. Mm. It's, it's, it's what we call third-party uh, behaviour. And uh, believe it or not, this goes on a lot, mm-hmm. uh, specifically for businesses and some of the celebrities and the influencers out there. This happens a lot. There's nothing really you can do about it. However, you can comment on the stuff that is said about you. Yeah. And this is where PR really comes into it and having a bit of an understanding of of what light you want to be painted in. You can defend your own rights and your own yeah. angle and your own view. And that's just basically being open, being Mm. considerate, Mm. and just writing honestly. Uh, The one thing that we have noticed through all of our study and all of our research and all of the the digging that we've done is that honesty always shines through. Mm. Uh, Just being open and honest on your comments is the best way to go because we can see when Mm. you're lying or not. Mm. Absolutely fascinating chat. Some amazing tips there, Nate. Thank you so much for having a chat with me today. Not a problem. Look, blessed to be a blessing. Anytime you want me, I'm happy to jump on. And time to have a chat with Chris Zyre from Lonely Planet. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Good morning. Virgin Australia, uh, they've had some numbers reduced with their staffing levels over the last couple of months. It's been sold off too to the private investment group that have purchased it. Unfortunately, some more announcements made in the last couple of hours about some more staff getting made redundant as well. But what exactly are they doing? What's their survival plan, I guess? Yeah, so this is so this is the proposed kind of reboot um, for Virgin Australia's long-term survival, and it's kind of pretty dramatic. Um, and all the things that you mentioned there have led kind of to these deci- to this decision making. You know, with border closures, that's both domestic and international. There's just a lack of kind of travellers. Um, you know, actually, you know, going into certain regions. But you know, when you look at the numbers, it, it's pretty dramatic. So. 3,000 of Virgin Australia's 9,000 employees will be made redundant. So that's over a third of their workforce. Um, They're going to do a huge um, overhaul of their aircraft and and literally get rid of a lot of their, you know, things like their A380s and skinny their their vehicles Mm. down or the kind of the planes that we travel on. Um, And they're also going to reduce uh, services into local areas as well as concluding um, or stopping, uh, you know, some regional routes altogether. And that includes... Um, routes such as Tamworth, Ayers Rock, um, Harvey Bay, Mildura, they're just going to cease altogether, which is a really dramatic step. Yeah, I mean, there are ways for people, obviously, to get out there and explore 
the states that they're in. And I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, I've myself, I've gone around and done some, you know, COVID safe holidays throughout New South Wales. And I know friends who are stuck up in Queensland that have done the same thing. That's excellent. But I mean, until we can start flowing between state by state, they're sort of in between a rock and a hard place. They really are, aren't they? Yeah, and and, and this is where these, these kind of really hard decisions are having to be made. But I think, you know, from our point of view, like, uh, you know, as we, we kind of keep our, our eye on travel so, so uh, you know, so rigidly, hmm. um, I think the thing that we're mostly concerned about is that we're going to have less airlines flying into less communities. And we know that, um, you know, traveller dollars are really quite vital to, hmm. to, um, to towns and regions centres because those traveller dollars, when they come into communities, they get reinvested into those communities. Can you see Virgin in the future, you know, once COVID goes away, can you see them getting back enough supply to put these routes back on? Or do you think Virgin will just focus on the capital cities and leave those to Qantas? And what does it mean for Qantas, I guess? Yeah, so you've, you've touched on two really important points. So the first being that Qantas, who operates Jetstar as well, um, it will be the only low-cost... Jetstar will be the only low-cost carrier that's left in Australia because Tiger Airlines, through this announcement, through Virgin Australia, will now also be defunct. Um, so it also leaves um, it leaves a gap in the market for some other players potentially to come in. So Rex, the regional airline, they might might consider kind of, um, you know, changing up um, some of their routes or, or increasing their frequency. But our concern becomes what does that do for cost um, of a plane ticket, um, particularly because there's a lack, if there's a lack Lack of competition, you obviously know that that one that one carrier or that can potentially charge whatever they will. Um, Virgin Australia are on record as saying they are committed to regional Australia. And they're going to continue to operate twenty routes um, across the nation, um, and they are looking to um, bring a lot of those routes back once um, once we're travelling at kind of you know at, at greater levels again. Yeah, exactly. Does that kind of open up a bit of a market for people doing sort of caravanning or camper vanning type holidays as well, or do you think? People are just going, you know what, the cost isn't there. I might not be working as much as I was pre-COVID-19. I'm just going to sit around the house and not holiday. Yeah, you've picked up on one of the travel trends that we at Lonely Planet have already identified, and that's kind of like what we're calling almost like a slow travel, um, which is which we, which is kind of throwing either as a couple or throwing your family into the car um, and actually exploring, um, you know, your local area a little bit more frequently and whether that's, um, you know, via a caravan or doing some Airbnbs or um, all of those kind of bits and pieces. I think that's going to definitely be a trend that we don't just see in the short term, but that's going to extend through probably a lot of 2021. Crystal ball stuff. How do you think travel will go once we're allowed to do it internationally again? Do you think there'll be a massive surge of people or do you think there'll be kind of just a slow pitter-patter of people? I particularly think there's a younger age demographic that, um, you know, that sort of 18 to 30-year-old mm. who's kind of been denied the opportunity yeah. to travel. So they'll be absolutely aching to get out there again and really kind of kind of do that stuff. Um, I think the big thing for a lot of us is we would expect people are going to put more value on a holiday. So the experiences they have are going to be really important to them. If I want to see the pyramids in Egypt, that's going to go straight to the top of my list if yeah. i want to like you know spend time on a greek island that's going straight to the top of my list so i think people are kind of being after you've been denied the opportunity to do things i think they're going to turn around and go no nah, i want to do the ultimate experience that I, you know that sits at the top of my list chris thank you so much for your time all the best thanks mate and time to have a chat with georgia bamba success coach georgia thank you so much for having a chat with me again today 
Thank you. You're very welcome. So, people getting some bad habits during sort of, well, not necessarily even during sort of everything we've gone through in 2020, just sort of in general, if you've picked up bad habits, how can you kick him? You're going to help us out with that. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people have picked up the old COVID kilos, I think, and there's been people who've maybe been drinking more than they normally would, or perhaps watching more Netflix. I mean, a lot of us, um, you know, under in times of stress or anxiety yeah. or uncertainty do pick up bad habits, but of course, we pick them up all the time. So these tips are useful for now or any time. So I think the best place to start is understanding what a habit is. And a habit really is just a solution to a problem. Uh, it might not be a good solution, but it's just um, the solution to a problem you're having. Mm. So let's say you've got some predilection for pizza. So what's the problem? The problem is you're hungry and you're solving that by eating pizza. So maybe not a great choice because it comes with a lot of negative consequences, like being unhealthy, but it fills you up. So I think that's the first thing to understand about your habits. They're, they're a solution to a problem. And so understanding how to break them, you've got to figure out what is the problem that I'm solving um, and then take it from there. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I've got you. No, exactly right. So work out why it is that you've been doing something that's negative and turn it into a positive? I guess it would just find yeah. a solution that doesn't have the negative consequences that you're not that you don't want anymore. So, you know, there are plenty of alternatives to being hungry. You don't have to have pizza or takeout. You could cook yourself something or have an apple. So find a solution that doesn't have the negative consequences. But if you, if you come from that starting point of, of really understanding what the problem is that you're solving, then it takes a lot of the, the pressure off and it makes sense as well. And then I think once you understand what that problem is, I'm very much about helping people to crowd out bad habits and, and create new ones. So really focus on the positive habits that you want to create rather than beating yourself up because you're not eliminating the bad one. Mm. So a lot of people just, you know, really focus on not doing something, but I think it's so much easier to focus on doing something instead. So, uh, you know, example of that would be, let's say you were drinking too many sugary soft drinks and you wanted to stop that instead of like beating yourself every time you grab that yeah. can of Coke. Maybe you could focus instead on creating a habit of drinking more water. And I promise you, if you were trying to drink eight glasses of water a day, it's really it's not that appealing to be drinking more soda. So you crowd out the bad habit yeah. by creating the new habits. Yeah, I love that. A little bit of reverse psychology always does the trick a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And you just you won't you know if you if you're eating a salad before every meal, then you're going to be less hungry to eat the dessert afterwards. So yes. just start the the good habits, and and then the bad habits will just fade away by themselves. Um, and then I think the last thing that's really important is just to make it really easy to do the things that you want to do and really hard to do the things that you don't want to do. So set up your environment in a way that makes it simple to do the good stuff and hard to do the bad yeah. stuff. So if let's say you want to start a fitness um, regime or, you know, a fitness habit, you know, get your exercise kit out in, in the evening before and it's ready in the morning. Have your shoes yeah. by the back door so you trip over them on the way out. Like make it really easy to make that yeah. habit happen. Uh, I think that's key as well. Exactly right. Don't have any snacks around at home, so it makes yeah. it really hard to have to drive to the shop to get them, you see? That's Absolutely. what I've done. Works yeah, a yeah, treat. clean up the pantry for all the yeah. junk food or the, you know, the snack foods. And, um, <laughs> you know, I have a rule that I can have, you know, junk foods or a piece of cake or something like that, but I have to make it. <laughs> yeah. It's so much more time-consuming that, you know, I do it a lot less often. Yes, no, no, very true. That's it. And, of course, baby steps, as I think we said last time we spoke, baby steps, and don't beat yourself up over it if you're 
fall off the path. Absolutely, yeah. It's just it's just forming that consistent habit, and I think that's a problem as well. People like fall off the wagon, and they think, "Oh, I've done it now. I might yeah. as well just give it all up." Yeah. But the point is, you just start again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it yeah. doesn't matter. It's it's fine. Just pick yourself up and keep going. I think is key too. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. There's some great tips there, Georgia, the success coach. Thank you so much for the chat today. Uh, you are very welcome. Thank you for having me on again. It's a pleasure. And time to have a chat about this donation dollar, which they've uh, launched in the last week or so. To tell us more, a chief strategy officer at Salted Stone, Tony Eads. Tony, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jared. Good to talk. So they've designed the Royal Australian Mint. They've come out with this donation dollar, which they're going to be putting out in circulation over the next couple of years. What's the premise of this? Well, it, it, there's a lot going on, as we all know. You know, we're all in this this, this kind of pandemic together. And I mean, one of the the big things that's uh, been in, impacted are, are charities. Mm. You know, fundraising was was always becoming a bit of a challenge. You know, as we we become less kind of cash concert, conscious, we don't carry the coins anymore. So. Uh, charities were already going through a bit of a you know shortfall in fundraising, and volunteering was kind of plummeting a little bit as well. In fact, the Salvation Army's iconic Red Shield appeal, which happens kind of every year, they claim has only raised half the funds. Mm. So, besides charities, there's also the rest of us. Like there's you know there's claims you know from surveys that one in five Australians are going to need some level of aid over the next 12 months, according to the Australian Generosity Report. Yeah. So I think this is what's prompted um, the the Mint to sort of come up with this initiative. Yeah, and it's a lovely-looking coin. It's kind of got a green and gold kind of feel to it. And basically, when you get this, they're urging you to, instead of spending it, donate it. A hundred percent. And it's interesting how you, you, you know, you're impressed with the look and feel because that's also the danger of this because every time they bring out some kind of a commemorative yeah. coin, people want to collect it. They want to hold on to it. And the worst thing that can happen, they've kind of urged people, they're saying, look, this isn't a collectible, this is a, a donation coin. So the idea is, is, as you get these coins, think about who you can give them to because it's kind of got that nice encryption that's kind of on the coin saying give to help others to remind people that the coin isn't to be kept or yeah. collected but to actually be used. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned this uh, before, the move towards a more cashless society this almost kind of goes against that and kind of moves us in the opposite direction. How does it fit in, do you think, with what the Mint and, I guess, uh, economists are looking for towards a cashless society? Yeah, well, well, this, Jared, is the challenge, I think, you know, because uh, it's, it's all, you know, it's a world initiative. It's a great initiative that the Royal Mint's put up. But uh, the challenge that they've got is, you know, besides the fact that, you know, during COVID, we don't actually want to even touch money. Mm. You know, a lot of mm. merchants are avoiding even the cash side of things. Mm. But also, pre-COVID, uh, Australia was kind of moving towards a trend to be, you know, kind of, you know, one of the first kind of economies in our region to actually be cashless, you know, following in the footsteps of um, countries like Sweden that have already become cashless. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because although the RBA have said that we're probably going to get there and even predicted that we could get there as early as to, to uh, 2020, which is like a couple of years away, um, 70% in some kind of uh, research has sort of found that people are actually opposed to it. So it's, it's a dilemma at the moment. This could actually probably motivate people more to go back to having wanting to have cash and using cash rather than cards and sort of moving towards that cashless economy. Do you think eventually we'll get to 
being a cashless society? I kind of think we will. Um, yeah. Just the, I think the convenience of, especially um, not so much the credit cards and the cash cards, but it's the mobile phone. Yeah. Like how convenient it is to have everything loaded on apps on your phone and all you do is just tap your phone. Um, even even uh, catching transport over here on the East Coast, I mean, it's, you know, we, we, we do it a lot where we just, you know, mm. tap our card rather than using a trip card or cash yeah. or anything like that. So I think we, we, as a society, we're getting used to this tap-and-go mentality, which means that cash is becoming, you know, a little bit cumbersome. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, charities will eventually adapt, I think. You know, a lot of people are using the, you know, we give loose change at the moment to charities. If we go cashless, they'll miss out on all of that. But they'll catch up. Everyone always adapts whenever there's, you know, something that's put in their way. Yeah, I think so. And I, th- I think they already started too. I mean, I, I certain, certainly started to see, and you may have seen those in the shopping malls where they've got like a, almost like a credit card type of tapping thing. So you can actually walk up and say, okay, I want to donate $5 or $10. Yeah. And all you do is tap whichever one you want to donate. That kind of seamless yeah. approach is, I think, where we need to be heading with charities. Yeah, uh, but maybe these coins will make. I mean, the the, the um, mints are planning to put twenty five million of these out into circulation, and they claim that if everyone gets behind it, we could be raising something like three hundred million dollars of extra, you know, donation yeah. and funding for the needy. Yeah, no, I love it. We're the first mint anywhere in the world that's done these do- uh, these uh, donation coins as well. It, it is. It's a world first, and I think that's uh, you know it's a credit to us. I mean, we we, we are a creative lot here in yeah. Australia, and um, and doing you know doing quite well, you know, holding our own in terms of the pandemic. But I think these are the kind of initiatives that uh, can make a big difference. Tony, thank you so much for your chat today. Very fascinating. Thanks, Jared.